Hello, Heron. Hi, Tom. So for the past few recordings, the hello, Heron, hi, Tom has actually been missed off the recorder. And I'm not sure whether it's a defect in the software, but... Hi, Tom. Hi, Heron. (laughs) Third time now. Hi, Heron. Hi, Tom. Gosh. (laughs) So I'm coming to you from my new recording room. Yes, yes, your studio. Yes. (laughs) And it feels like a studio, actually. I've got a bookshelf... Sorry, I've got a wall covered in bookshelves, so about 10 feet minus about half a foot that allows for the plug access. And the other wall is currently, it's got one bookshelf on it, but aside from that, I've got a table, and I'm sure I'll be doing more with this room, but... Uh, yeah. Oh, that's yeah. cool. And, and your cats are all together again, too. Yes. I was going to uh, I was going to raise that as a topic this evening, yeah. but what happened was we, I guess we're out of the house for, I don't know, maybe a couple of days, and then the day that we moved in, I said to my wife, why don't we go to El Pollo Loco? And she said, okay, this was on the move-in day. The movers yeah. were having their lunch. And I said, why don't we go to El Pollo Loco? So we went to El Pollo Loco, and we got... You can get, like, a cup of cut chicken. So we got the cup, cup of cut chicken, and we put it outside, and, the, and no sign of the cat. And I was just like, okay, this is like a ceremonial thing. Yeah. And the next day... Well, you maybe get some other cat. <laughs> yeah, no, the next day, <laughs> you know, seven cats. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Or two, yeah. yeah. Then we'll have, like, a cat reality TV show to pick the cat that we actually picked. <laughs> but no, that was not to be, because uh, my wife went out in the morning, and there he was, just under a tree. Oh, cool. He'd eaten the old He was lotion. just exploring the the neighborhood, I guess, <laughs> you know, just checking out his new home. Yeah, yeah. something like that. Looking he, for the ladies. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. He was absolutely filthy and thirsty. He came in and he drank water for about 20 minutes, which gave my wife and I enough time <laughs> to take photos of him. He ate some food and then he just collapsed on the floor. And in the early evening, he, you know, bucked up and then wanted to go outside again. Well, I mean, did he go out before? I mean, was had he, he ever a, been out before? Yes, uh, my wife had let him out on one time previously. I mean, so so he—that's part of his life, I guess, is occasionally going. <laughs> but what most of his time he spends in the house, I well, mean, in a litter box and everything. Yeah, he, no, he's he's got it made here. I mean, the the funny thing is that my wife will let him out, but I won't let him out because every time I've let him out, <laughs> he, he doesn't come he's back. Run, you know, <laughs> yeah. and not only has he run, he's usually run in a very humorous way with me kind of chasing after. After him, oh, yeah. and uh, that's a that's a losing proposition. <laughs> yeah, so my yeah, it was all very fascinating. But he's back, and he's just as personable as ever. And yeah, we have our cats all together. That's great. That's great. New house, old cats. Exactly. Very old cats. <laughs> well, old house and old cats. Yes. <laughs> yes. But the thing with the cats is that they, in in our apartment, they all slept in a room together. And when we got to the house, we thought, oh, we'll just give the bottom floor to them. Yeah. But that doesn't work out because they basically, there's a doorway at the top of the stairs and they just camp out at the top of the stairs meowing from about like 4am or at least a couple do. <laughs> so now they all sleep in a room at the furthest, uh, you know, the furthest distance from the, the stairs and yeah, we've got to muster them into the room every evening, which is always yeah. interesting. Uh, but putting, no, putting the cats to sleep. Yeah. yeah. Putting the cats to bed is always, and of course it's the task that I have to perform, so. I've never heard of putting a pet to sleep. Well, <laughs> you know, not or, in that sense. Well, anyway. you know what I mean. You know, yes, I, yeah, yes. I, I mean, I, I've sort of let them take care of that. I never really thought about, okay, it's bedtime. The thing about <laughs> it is, I think probably one or two of them, well, a couple of them are actually quite good, kind of sleeping on the end of the bed and this kind of stuff. But even those ones will still wake you up at 6.30, you know, with yeah. a, a whack 
to the nose or they'll try to do CPR on you or, you know, they they like to wake you up at a reasonable time so you can get them some food (laughs) or or what? What cats don't want to play, do they? Yeah, they do. The thing about it is that we we own five of the creatures and they each have a specific time that they like interacting with us. So we basically we basically have a, you know, an awake length of time worth of cats but they all just file in at different times so there are late evening cats there are yeah. midday cats there are early yeah. morning cats and you know right. yeah you need to retrain them. the early morning cats and that's the well, problem yeah. <laughs> but the thing is the thing is that what i'll do now is when we wake up in the morning i'll go down i'll let them out and the early morning cats are the first ones on the bed wanting to be stroked i mean they're very much you know they're very social in the morning yeah. So that's actually quite nice in some regard. I mean, they're not Sure. It's yeah, so a nice way to wake up. Yeah. But the funny thing is, on the window that the, this cat escaped through, there were, like, telltale paw marks, like dirty paw marks, which indicated that one cat had come back in having jumped out the window, i.e. the cat that was still here. And it was almost for the first couple of nights before, uh, before you know, uh, he goes by a number of names. Let's just call him Wiggles here. He goes by yeah. a number of names. Anyway, Wiggles came back. There was this almost like a murder scene with, you know, chalked out paw prints on the window <laughs> ledge and all this kind of stuff, which just became overly dramatic and emotional <laughs> until he finally returned. And now it's just a bit of a joke uh, in the in the guest bedroom. <laughs> but yeah, we are. I mean, my wife, hats off to my spiritual advisor. She, while I've been working through the week, she has been unpacking and tearing apart yeah. boxes. There is one box that's missing currently, which I think will probably turn up. We've just gone through so many boxes, it's, you know, almost inevitable that you won't get to everything. But oh, everything else is unpacked. I mean, we have yeah. stuff from the UK that we that was shipped over to us in boxes that I guess we must have kept in apartments in boxes and then moved into our house in boxes and then storage in boxes and then here. And now my wife's unpacked them. So we've got like yeah. a lot of extra china and stuff that we haven't seen for 10 plus years. Wow. It is very, very strange. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, moving. What do they say? Uh, changing jobs, moving, and the mm. death of a spouse are mm. the most traumatic events yeah, people moving experience. Moving has historically not been that traumatic for me, and I think it's probably a function of age, but it's also a function of the fact that when we purchased this place, it needed at least six weeks' worth of solid work, i.e. Yeah. painting, plumbing, electrical. I mean, there was a lot of stuff yeah. that needed to be done here. So our relationship with this place was already pretty, you know, pretty intensive. Yeah. Yeah. And then the stuff arrived, and then there was just stuff that we hadn't seen for, you know, how many years. Yeah. Um. So, yeah, it, it was a move. But it was probably when the... I mean, I moved out of Australia with seven mailboxes, size boxes, which were, I guess, two and a half feet by maybe six inches by maybe... 12 inches of that order. I think, okay. I think it's actually 15, 13, 6 of the inch dimensions. Yeah. And right. I had basically everything I owned in those boxes. Yeah. And one of them, which funnily enough contained all my photographs and a couple of books, was rained on at one of the ports and they kind of squished it all up and sent it to me in a larger box, which was kind of distressing because I just had this wad of wet paper, which was a kind of photo <laughs> book. <laughs> cardboard sandwich that they just decided to send me. Well, um, which is nice. actually interesting because it kind of eliminated my identity for a period of time. I have very few photos of my family, of a wide variety of things that were just yeah. eliminated in this in this yeah. washing situation, whatever rain situation. But um so from our recording last week, 
Well, I should ask you, actually, do you have any topics you'd like to raise? <laughs> well, there is something th- that you brought up mm-hmm. a couple of weeks ago at the end, and that was the end of it. And I'm really fired up about it. And that was this idea of doing a simulation, you know, about of language monkeys. Oh, yes. Yeah. You know, because that I, I love that idea. So that was about four recordings ago. And that yeah. was specifically, uh, I think, for Chris McIntosh, our listener, who is starting his own, you know, monkey brain simulation. Yeah. And I think what I wanted to do there was to give a kind of blueprint to the kind of questions that one needs to ask. Because when I started Mobile there were a series of questions that I had. And I framed writing the software as means not necessarily to directly immediately answer the questions, but at least to provide... At least to formulate the, yeah, the questions. Exactly. Yes. You know, to give some possibility that after 10 years worth of work, some of these questions might start being ticked yeah, off. Yeah. And I think the nature of what you talk about is so tightly focused on the kinds of conversations that you have about your work yeah. that I had to kind of extract you from your comfort zone and look at the ideas in a slightly more abstract sense. Because, I mean, what you what you do... Well, I like... Listen, that yeah. wasn't out of my comfort zone at all. No, 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 no. no. <laughs> but what I'm saying is when, you normally dis- when you're normally talking with another person... I'm selling Gendo. Yes. That's 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 not research. That's selling Gendo Certainly. or trying to be helpful to someone. Certainly, you know, Certainly. yeah, yeah. That's a whole different yeah. thing. Yeah. yeah, but no, the idea. In fact, you know, since I've been rereading Julian Jaynes now, mm-hmm. uh, it's been probably what thirty years or mm-hmm. or since since that that book changed my life, and my own theories of language have developed considerably since then. Certainly, and uh, I'm not nearly as well. I'm still. I mean, considering when it was written, it's still mind boggling, but. Uh, one of the fundamental things that I that I've come up with, and I, I and it seems to be, well, I just haven't heard it talked about, is this idea that language is uh, is not is only a, a communication tool secondarily, that its primary job is a navigation tool, hmm. and that all not only all mammals but probably I mean all animals, even mosquitoes, mm-hmm. have to have some way to navigate their environment. You know, a little map so, sort of inside. And what I'm saying is that that is language. And that can be formulated in a lot of ways. And actually, this works in, I mean, I've never really liked Chomsky's work, but his talk about uh, so-called deep structure and mm-hmm. universal grammar, yeah. I'm thinking that that's what we're talking about. You know, that, that it's this, uh, this basic navigation tool that allows us to identify physical objects and map them somehow. And, and in order to use that thing, those, there have to be some sort of labels. They don't have to be, I mean, they're certainly not words in the normal sense, mm. but they're some sort of triggering mechanism that says this thing. Okay. Not this thing. Yeah. And that, uh, and that, that we all have that on this fundamental biological level. And that what happened when, what, what most people call language is when when that thing, and that's all, let me back up, that's always been an internal thing. It had yes. nothing to do with, with uh, sharing information or anything. It was just how I found my way around and dealt with my environment, yeah. which it would include, of course, you know, noises and postures of other animals in my environment. So there already is some awareness of that. But uh, the, the big thing about what people call language is when somehow that structure escaped the, the the individual language monkey's skull and began mm. to be shared by a community 
And that's what people call language. And I think that's wrong. That's just, that's a new phase, a new use of language, mm. a dramatic and important thing. Mm. But it, but it, but it, it, it didn't just come out of nowhere. <laughs> you know, it, yes. it, there was a structure there and that structure has been around since the beginning. And that's the universal grammar that Chomsky is talking about, probably. Anyway, the point is you're going to have to give the universal grammar to the to the monkeys. So taking a step back, you posted, I think yesterday, a documentary which I think I'd seen previously about, I think the girl's oh, yeah. pseudonym was Jeannie, is that right? Correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I had seen that previously, but not soon enough probably to talk about it too coherently. Yeah. And the thing that struck me when I saw it initially, and I must have seen it prior to Noble Ape, so that's 20 years ago now, was the notion of the raw biology. Now, obviously, this girl had a series of experiences that were outside purely the biology. She had sensory deprivation. Yeah, she yeah, she's in a whole different class. She's, she's, yeah. a, she's a different class compared to the so-called wild child. Yeah. Well, they don't really know anything about him, but apparently, he, at least he wasn't abused, you know. Yeah. Well, you, although it's mythology, it's very interesting mythology, and it's mythology I return to frequently associated with Romulus and Remus, mm-hmm. you know, the founders of Rome, the boy the twins i think they were that were raised by wolves yeah and so i think throughout you know i mean they they made references um i looked up the wikipedia entry on genie and they made references uh not only to the wild boys but um or the wild boy to um so another ancient greek kind of reference there seemed to be historically a series of these children either mythical or real that are are there any of them that are able to recover language because it's beginning to look like the idea that the window closes around puberty is is on. You well, know? the mythology associated with Romulus and Remus was that they... But again, that's mythology, so yeah. who knows? Yeah. It yeah. is a very curious thing, because when you, when you describe... Let's use the term internal and external language. External language being spoken language and internal language. Yeah. And the important distinction... I didn't want to inter- interrupt you while you were yeah. rapping. But yeah. the objects that language describes are both physical and metaphysical and completely imagined. Well, well, and of course, that's the problem. Yeah. She has. She's good at naming things. Yes. But she can't put, but, and, her, and she has no grammar. Yes. And she basically, she does pretty much what gorillas do. Yes. And that, and, but then there's the other thing about, I mean, it was an interesting thing because her EKG, or not EKGs, her EEGs mm-hmm. showed what are called spindles. And do you remember that part? No, I don't. This is okay. the thing I should have. Uh, yeah. Unfortunately, it was like close to midnight when I saw your yeah. post last night. Yeah, it, it was fascinating. I, I saw it years ago too, and and I watched it again, and it just. But but the 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 question. I mean, her father apparently treated her that way because he had already assumed she was retarded. Yes. And uh, and she had signs in her EEGs uh, of these dense forms called spindles that are common in uh, retardation. Yeah. But of course, that doesn't really mean anything because the question is it, that kind of sensory deprivation. You know about the the experiments with monkeys, and Certainly. you know they die. Yeah. You know, so obviously. She could be physically, I mean, seriously a brain-damaged language monkey, even if she started out perfectly normal. Yeah. You know, so that, but, but that really was bugging me. You know, I was thinking is, you know, if she wasn't 
brain damage to begin with. She certainly is now. Well, by our definition of brain damage. I mean, it's interesting because what it shows is that we have a raw biology. Yeah. But we probably, within that biology, we also probably have strong epigenetic elements. I was talking with my my wife today. Her quilting, the owner of the quilt shop has has purchased a puppy. And at, at age three weeks, the puppy knows how to sit. Yeah. It knows how to behave. It's a collie. <laughs> it knows how to behave like a collie, and it's only yeah. three weeks old. Yeah. And we yeah. were talking about this phenomena associated with well, how much of it is seeing its mother, and yeah. how much of it is just part of the genetics, the musculature, yeah. Yeah. all these things associated with Well, like with almost being... all wild mammals get up and run within hours of birth. Well, yes. But that, well, that's an interesting point as well, because there clearly you have a musculature and you have a bone yeah. structure that yeah, just facilitates Yeah, it's ready that. to go. The programming yeah. is there. Yeah. Yeah. It is very fascinating because when you think of humans without language, when you think of the notion that yeah. a human could exist independent of other humans, which is almost impossible. Well, see, that's the thing that I'm saying is they do have language. They don't have this external thing. Yes. They don't have the community, but they clearly would have to have this internal navigation yes. system. I mean, that's that's got to be it. I mean, if they don't have that, if that's not there, they are bedridden and comatose. Well, the development of the brain is such, and here I used to, I used to have periodic conversations with an embryologist who was very well versed in the, whatever the term is, the fetal cognitive mm-hmm. development, and then yeah. basically what, through the birth period, yeah. and through, you know, up till... Yeah, they're clearly developing and learning and doing all sorts of things yes. you know, from the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, it is, because, I mean, a child, a baby left in the elements really wouldn't survive for uh, a, a, d- a few hours, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's interesting that the nature of this helplessness, but also the sponge nature of the brain to just completely yeah. suck up everything through that period yeah. of time. Yeah. There are um, California ads currently associated with parents who spend long periods of time interacting electronically and the fact that that actually triggers severe learning disabilities in their children. That oh, they, I, mean if, I mean, if they're not interacting with their Yeah, kids. like if they're texting yeah, yeah. or on yeah. Facebook or anything yeah. like that, they're quiet yeah. for a period of time where the children yeah. are there and that yeah. being a parent actually means that you can't interact with these it, electronic forms through the early ch- the child's early development. Well, you can a little bit, maybe when they're sleeping. Well, when they're sleeping, clearly, yeah. but yeah. when they're awake, yeah. you need to be there and verbally. Most of the time, yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's a major... Yeah, that... People who think they're going to have kids and just get on with their life are fucking nuts. Yeah. They're going to raise monsters or, yes. you know, yeah, you got to be there all the time. Yeah. And talking to them all the time. Yes. <laughs> yes. I always like Alan Watts' idea of not using baby talk, you know, talking mm. to your six-month-old and say, well, hello, Bill, welcome uh, to Earth. Uh, I know you don't understand what I'm talking about, but, <laughs> you know, and just... Yes. You know, that would be a really interesting experiment, but I guess that's one of the forbidden experiments. No, no, my uncle and aunt did that with her, with the children. Oh, really? Did it it make any noticeable difference? Well, they also, when the children would fall over, they would never react. And that was very difficult to be around 
because the kids were frequently falling over. <laughs> and you, they just didn't, you weren't allowed to move, you weren't allowed to try to make any gestures of trying to assist them or anything oh, like that. Oh, God. Which was actually <laughs> quite difficult. They yeah. also, which I don't know whether, I mean, I guess they were close by, but age six months or something, they put their eldest son in a dam and watched him swim. I mean, they really were <laughs> on yeah. the edge of, yeah, you yeah. know. However, I mean, my aunt is a OBGYN, so I don't know what that means. But, well, you know. I mean, she probably wasn't going to let it get dangerous. Yeah, wasn't anyway. going to let the, the baby drown. But yeah, it is, it is striking. I, I had a neighbor who had a kid, and I, I, this is all really vague. This is back when I was like in my early 20s. Yes. So, uh, But he had a kid. It was a guy and his wife and their kid who was about four or five. And that kid was astounding. He had a, I mean, it was like talking to a college student. Yes. You know, I, I, I mean, just his normal talk, you know, yes. just, uh, I still, I, boy, I wish I, you know, I just wasn't that tuned into language at the time. Yeah. I mean, I was impressed by him, but damn, <laughs> you know, uh, it was astounding to see this four year old or five. He was real young. He might have been four. I don't know, but he yes. was tiny. Jesus, yeah, yeah, amazing. Well, some children, I mean, I, I guess I was like this. Some children just love to speak. Yeah, know? and some people have that gift that yeah. others don't. I mean, there's that inborn stuff, too. You know, some people are just have that tendency and others don't, you know. Yeah, as a small part of that topology. I'm yeah, I was fascinated about, yeah. by adults, and I think in order to get that kind of deeper interaction with adults, you have to be yeah. relatively yeah. linguistically fluent. I mean, Did I tell to... you about my earliest memory? Uh, tell me about your earliest memory. I think yeah, you probably have. Yeah, I probably me. have, but it yeah. was me, me stand, I had my own bedroom, apparently. Mm -hmm. I was standing in my bedroom, which was dark. Mm -hmm. My hand was on the doorknob way over my head. Yes. And I had the door cracked open and I was looking and apparently, I mean, now I understand it, but they were, my parents were having a party uh -huh. and they're the living room and, and my door opened up into the, this hall, but you could see the living room clearly. Yes. And there are a whole bunch of adults in there talking and laughing. Yes. And I remember thinking to myself, I wonder how they do that. Uh-huh. You know, and so I clearly was on the verge of some sort of language. Yes. I mean, even to formulate that thought. Yeah. But that was, that was, that's the earliest memory I have was mm. standing there listening and watching these people laugh and talk. And I knew they were doing something that, that you know, it was real clear to me that something really interesting was happening, but I didn't really understand what it was. Mm. <laughs> yes. That is curious. Yeah, well, like I say, I, I must have had some. Well, and that was the other thing about Jeannie is that she, I was really surprised that she was able to remember things. Well, I've, I've questioned this actually, but that she was able to remember things from before she began to learn language uh, and talk about them, like about her father getting angry. Yes, but I think I mean the problem here is is that you, although you deny it when interrogated, you have this view of language that it is that is both kind of the beginning and the end. Oh, no, it's not the end. Well, Maybe the beginning. Well, this is okay. Let's just stuff, say yeah. it's the beginning. Yeah. And I actually think that there's, there's stuff that is very much sublinguistic. Well, if we're talking about this this navigation map, mm. then I, then I would agree. But and that's got to have some sort of memory in it too. So you're right. It, well, that was like I say when I watched that, and she clearly, or at least apparently, uh, you know, was able to articulate memories from when before she had any external language. Mm -hmm. So clearly, this internal mapping, 
allows for that. I read a book too about a guy who, uh, a Mexican immigrant here in California, actually, who had no, who was deaf and dumb and had never learned sign language. And, uh, but it was different though. He lived in a very, he, he was brought up with his parents in a home with other people around <laughs> and they sort of invented, you know, ways to communicate. But I mean, it wasn't a language or anything, mm. but but he was able to navigate and find his way around and do stuff without any sort of sort of normal language. So so I, I think it really helps distinguishing between the basic navigation system and full out communication, interpersonal linguistic communication, and that those the the first one is the sort of platform for the second one but the first one is actually not not all that bad it works pretty good without the second one there is an intuition associated with someone who is going to cause you harm or at least someone who is oh, yeah. actively working against you yeah when you're actually understanding another person's intentions in, in emotional yeah. motives and intentions yeah. which i think is fundamentally sublinguistic there i these, agree yeah there are these kind of things which exist in the outside world well the language can add a dimension to it but you're right I, and we call that sort of intuition you just get this feeling yeah you know that uh, this ain't right yeah, yeah. and it's not yeah. the thing about it is is that clearly you can embody it in linguistics but the explanation of it is more implicit it can't be this when we were talking about the stonian ethic this is the kind of thing that i was trying to draw out of that was the mm -hmm. notion that you can have sublinguistic elements which are just not necessarily universally agreed upon because that i think is very dif difficult in the yeah. in estonian perspective well i think but, there may be some aspects yeah. could i mean the, on the biological level there of this navigation function there mm. may be some universal things in there yes our listener and former Noble Ape contributor Bob Mottram uh, mentioned our discussion associated with net neutrality, and he reminded mm -hmm. me that I was doing the discussion a disservice. So I have to apologise to the listenership here. Prior to my interaction with Google, I had a slightly different narrative associated with net neutrality, far more aligned to the general discussion associated with, you know, fees being charged between corporations that maybe pass yeah. down to the end user. <laughs> maybe, yeah. Well, right. Well, well, no, I mean, <laughs> well that may, listen, that's what you would expect, obviously. You know? when, let, me, let me tell a little anecdote. Okay. When, when I lived in Australia as a boy, the Australian dollar would fluctuate. When the Australian dollar would become weak, everything over everything that came in overseas would become more expensive. But strangely, when the Australian dollar became strong, <laughs> they stayed at the they same stayed. price. How interesting, yes. <laughs> so things just progressively got that's more called, and more That's expensive. called a ratchet. Yes. <laughs> a ratchet. And you know, my view with net neutrality associated with it. So anyway, in 2009, <laughs> prior to my interaction with Google, when I first heard about net neutrality, in fact, it was probably closer to 2007 and the hysteria around it, I thought there were two things that are fundamentally wrong with this. Firstly, and I think this constant has, has maintained itself over the past seven odd years, about 50% of the internet is within the US. But 50% of the internet is outside the US. And 50% of the internet is pornography. Well. <laughs> or Netflix. Yes. <laughs> 
and the thing about that that struck me was, and I've always found this very curious because the U.S. has this view that they legislate the world. I mean, they yeah. invade the world, but they well, they've been able to legislate well, the world. Yeah, well, they've been trying to, they've been doing it, and but that's getting more difficult now. Well, <laughs> yes. they've been able to do some of that financially. Yeah, but, yeah. Know. No, that time is over. Yes. yes. So it struck me that the whole legislation back then, or at least the discussion associated uh, with neutrality, yeah. was just a uh, bit of yeah. a nonsense. Well, yeah, actually, in that sense, you're right. It's a global issue. It has nothing to do with the United exactly. States. Yeah. The yeah. second thing that struck me about it was that the people that were talking about it were very naive about how the internet worked. And this here is Bob Mottram's point. I think it comes from Linux Outlaws. I'd like to say to the Stone Ape listening community that Bob Mottram listens to Linux Outlaws so the rest of us don't have to, and he will provide <laughs> information accordingly. Truth be told, I think I've listened to maybe one Linux Outlaws or maybe half of Linux Outlaws. Uh, over my time. But the, that is a very valid point, that traffic shaping goes on all the time. I mean, the, what they're trying to legislate against in net neutrality, and I would argue, even if it was written into law, the net neutrality is presented through this legislation, there would still be traffic shaping. Yeah. I mean, the whole nature of this discussion... Well, this whole thing is, the nature of this discussion takes place within the context of capitalism. This is... That, that's the fundamental flaw in the whole system. If you're going to take that system, it would seem quite obvious the way to do it is to charge the end users by how much they use. Well, the thing about it is, is that you, the U.S. has the most expensive Internet in the world. I mean, it's a bit like healthcare. The U.S. <laughs> has the, you know, the Internet and healthcare anywhere else in the world, even I think in Australia, which is pretty appalling because Australia, when I was in Australia, we were charged 50 cents a megabyte. <laughs> well, but like I say, whatever the figure is, th that's the only, I mean, as a capitalist, I would say that's reasonable. You know, if a guy use, if just like me, who's downloading all this shit all the time and someone else does nothing but, you know, uh, write an email to his grandma, then, you know, I should pay more. Why not? I mean, doesn't that make sense? So, I can't think of the fellow's first... Oh, it was Ted. It was Ted Stevens. The internet is a bunch of tubes. The notion that information is like oil is very, very... No, it's not like oil. It's like electricity. Well, yes. Electricity is curious in and of itself. Well, the notion that information is like electricity is even more curious because it's like... um. It's like gold-laden electricity in terms of the way that it's presented. No, but there's a limited amount of those things. Those are fundamentally limited. That's the, the point I, I think of this is that you can always build more tubes. You know, it's, just, it's not that big a deal. I mean, it's just about where, where your priorities are. Yes. It doesn't cost as much as a B-1 bomber. Certainly. <laughs> so. No, no, I mean, the Internet as it's charged in the U.S. is unimaginable in other countries. And rather than address this, which again goes back to my antitrust, you know, yeah. superset argument, there's this discussion that basically, and you're right, here, free market capitalism is the problem, because they have to pay shareholders. And yeah, it's all, yeah, yeah, yeah. The shareholders is where the, where this ridiculous- They want their starts. profits, exactly. they want their money. Yeah. And they want their growth. In this thing, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. Yeah, it's yeah. got to, it's got to keep expanding. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. So, yeah, it is an interesting phenomenon when you put it through those kind of lenses. But I'm always, and I mean, through my work, I'm frequently in meetings associated with this notion of, you know, vast quantities of data and opening these lines yeah. of vast quantities of yeah. data. But the meaningful cost that is there seems to be 
to a lesser extent with the hardware, to a greater extent with the maintenance. And well, this yeah, notion that yeah. information itself is the thing that needs to be charged for here just seems like a really antiquated concept, which obviously works very well for all the parties. Well, it, it's like I say, if you're going to go with capitalism, that's not an unreasonable way to do it. It's a bit like the notion that we should be billed on the words that we speak. That we billed need for what? For build. sharing information. Because information, uh, in speaking information, if information Give is me the commodity. A break. It's like being charged for speaking, you know. <sighs> well, okay. what's the commodity? Um, the commodity, well, I'm not sure there is a commodity. Does there have to be a commodity? There's, is the, the commodity, I guess, is megabytes or megabits of information that I'm putting out and, you know, sending out and getting in uh, over the, the global network. If I, like I say, if I sit here and send two emails a month to my granny and that's it, that's very different than downloading uh, 10 gigs a day of movies. But in terms of the information that's being transferred here... I don't care what kind of information. I'm just talking about megabits. Yeah, I'm, well, I'm talking yeah. about megabits too. In terms yeah. of the information that's transferred here... What are the costs associated with that? Oh, I, I, I don't know what the costs are, but I, I know there is a finite bandwidth. There's only so much data that can be being shipped, you know, without it clogging up the system. Well, if you look at, if you look at just the past 10 years, what has happened in the past 10 years, which we kind of wrapped about last recording associated with your hard disk, your, I think, 40 megabyte hard disk. Yeah, see, I don't want to charge. As far as I'm concerned, you know, this ought to all be free to everybody. It's just it, it's part of the cost of civilization. Yeah, you know, and it's just absorbed by all of us, and you can avail yourself of it to whatever extent you want. I guess the problem is that capitalism seems to be, and I found this actually coming to this country. In the UK, I was taxed considerably more. But I actually ended up with more money in my pocket because all the stealth taxation that goes on here with regards mm. to healthcare, a wide variety of charges, the internet costs. Yeah. I mean, all these things are stealth taxation, which are just added on and then mysteriously you end up with less. Well, it's about what it country. costs you to live. How many hours yeah. you have to work a week yeah. to, to get the stuff you want. Yeah. Or, well, to live fundamentally. Yeah. And it's an interesting. You know, it's an interesting thing when you talk about this notion of data commoditization, yeah. because I find a lot of aspects of my life artificially commoditized. And as you are asking with regards to data, I, you know, wonder myself, you know, when you start with data, there are many other aspects of your life that are artificially commoditized. Um, well, I'm not quite sure what it is you're talking about. So in the UK, for example, I bought a box and this box enabled me to have about 40 channels. It was a once-off fee, I plugged it into the wall, and annually I sent a check to the, not the BBC, but the UK television board, because yeah. I had a television. Yeah. Completely different model, no notion yeah. of data usage, actually yeah. okay. a lot of stuff that was yeah. really interesting to watch on the television, and not a bill of $200 a month. Yeah, okay. So, I mean, my view is that you can actually look at this stuff in a wide variety of different what ways. What about, are there, is there, is it commercial supported or? Yes, no, the, the history channels that I would watch in the UK were private history channels. Okay, but I mean, I'm just, you know, are there commercials everywhere you go? No. You know, on British TV or no. none? Uh, typically at the end of the half hour. I mean, no, aside from commercial 
stations, but they're, they're not like commercials. Here. Not well, like you know, here. Actually, I don't even know how it is here anymore. I'm assuming. I mean, the last it's far time worse watched, than when you last watched television. Really? It's about worse. Yeah, because I'm thinking now, like a half hour show was probably somewhere around twenty minutes. It was twenty three minutes when you stopped watching. It's now about twenty and a half minutes. Twenty and okay, that's not uh, a third. Still, it's outrageous. And but, you're paying for the cable television. And as how well. many interruptions before there was, uh, you know, a commercial in the beginning, and then at fifteen minutes there'd be. No, you, you clearly stop watching television. And then at the end, <laughs> there was uh, commercials. Yes, that's not the way it is now. They every five minutes it's, they've got yeah, the quarter quarter divide. No, it's really strange. No I mean, shit. Really, there are four or, or three breaks yeah, in yeah. it. Yeah. Holy shit. This is... This that's is, standard now? Yeah. Jesus, no wonder everybody's fucked up. Where, where I work, we see this because we get the commercial-free versions okay, of these shows. I'm going to ask another question. Wait a minute. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, are the writers writing to this? I mean, they must yes, be, I guess. They're writing to it so that the, the, so they've broken up their play into three chunks. Yeah. Uh, designed to be X number of minutes long. Four chunks now, typically, Harry. Well, if it's got... Got three sets of commercials, four chunks. Okay, well, whatever. Anyway, yeah. but anyway, they're writing to this schedule, certainly. So they're 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 shaping the content to fit that yes that model. Holy shit! God damn. <laughs> no, I mean this is the notion that actually you can frame things in completely different perspectives. And let me ask you this: like, like I'm sorry, to keep interrupting, I mean, because I'm really, you know, sort of out of it. I don't, I don't talk to people. I mean, do people still watch TV? Well, that's I mean, a do, very interesting do, question. Do people sit at home? I, oh, I guess. I mean, I'm not, I don't mean watch TV, but I mean, do people sit at home at night every night from the time from dinner to the time they go to sleep and sit in front of a television or a computer screen showing television? When, when I lived in Las Vegas, because I, the people I work with don't count now. But when I lived in Las Vegas, I worked with some regular Americans, and they had favorite shows, and we would go out to lunch together, and they would talk about their favorite shows, and I had no interactive means <laughs> of addressing this. But they had half a dozen more, actually. Yeah. And they every evening, they had stuff planned out, and that's just the way they lived. Yeah. And they were relatively conservative and Americans, and that's the way they lived. Yeah, well, I know, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. I, and so However, what percentage... I think they're decreasing. You, oh, I hope so. God. Here's an interesting phenomena. The major networks, the big three or whatever, have cancelled in total more than, I think there was 23 shows that they cancelled last season because they just weren't getting viewers. And it begs the question, actually, I mean, I predicted this four or five years ago when we first started talking, that the internet and YouTube and Netflix, obviously, but all these things heavily assailed into oh, television. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But uh, also yeah. the rating systems associated with television. I mean, Nielsen... Well, actually, what does television even mean anymore? I'm not even sure. I don't know what the hell... I mean, to me, TV is broadcast TV. You yes. put an antenna on your roof yes. and get the stations that are broadcasting in your area. But that almost... I mean, almost nobody... Li- that, that doesn't That's even exist. Exist anymore? No. Does it? It's all through cable, or a majority. I mean, in fact, does that even exist? Yeah, no, so Can you do that? Can you put an antenna we, on your roof? Let and- me answer this question, Karen. <laughs> when we moved into this place, it had an antenna on the roof. It doesn't anymore. The yeah, neighbors- that place is a hundred years old. That yes. <laughs> doesn't mean anything. Well, in in our street, there are a few places that still have. But you're right; they are, you know. That's, okay, so basically, P- TV is cable now. Yes. I mean, that's what it is for, what, 80% of people who have TVs in their home? I would assume that's about the number, yeah. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, cable, see, when I quit TV, cable was just coming in. Yeah. You know, and it was, well, 
Yeah. Jesus. So 80% of people are paying so that, see, and, and they call, see, but that's not really TV in the same, well, I guess it is. Yeah. See, it's still network television. I mean, that's, you still, yeah. Get network yeah television. I mean, they get that, but there's so much more though. I mean, even the, the cheapest, crappiest cable outfit gives you what, a, a couple hundred channels or something. Let me tell you a story, Heron, that's very relevant to this. Last Saturday, okay. we had cable installed here. It came with telephone, internet, home security, and traditional <laughs> cable television. Yeah. We needed a new fiber. The fiber here that was here was from the early 80s, so they had to completely relay the fiber here. And we have a television upstairs in our bedroom. We have a television downstairs in the living room. We've not turned on the television upstairs in the bedroom yet. What I used to do was plug in Apple TV and what have you and watch it that way. And we watched, occasionally we'd watch cable. I mainly used it for... Um, for airplay, which and is can you avoid commercials? Uh, I guess you can. What my wife does whenever we watch uh, cable television, which is relatively rare, is that she will say, "Let's start the show twenty minutes in, or whatever." We start recording. We set up to record, and then twenty minutes in, we start watching the program, and then we fast forward through the commercials, and that way we don't have to see any commercials. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So you can do that. Yeah. Um. It's. Yeah, it's a very strange phenomenon because really, I don't want to pay for the cable components of the television. I want the package. Yeah, I just want the internet. Phone, internet and security. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? And yeah, it, I tried on a couple of occasions to have this conversation with my cable provider, lastly in Las Vegas. And I know that there have been lobby groups that have tried periodically to do this in Washington. And they failed dismally because the cable what? lobby group to say to the cable providers rather than have a block payment because I mean we get HBO and Stars and all this yeah. thing. Is well, yeah, but thing. you don't need to get we, TV at all. Exactly, do we don't want any of that crap. Well, but, but you don't need to. I mean, I didn't. I had that when I got my cable stuff. I yeah. just it was just internet. That's all I got. Oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. You know, you could I could have got TV if I wanted it, but I didn't want it. I just want the internet, thank you. Yeah. They thought it, they they couldn't quite grasp that at first, but yes. but eventually they got it and, I, and they went, "Oh, I see. You just want the internet. So you don't you don't you don't have a TV?" <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah, no, that's interesting actually. We probably could approach it considerably more aggressively associated with not wanting television. Yeah. Yeah, yes. I think I'm surprised that that's that that uh, yeah because that's just like sort of they just I mean even when I look at their site it's just well I'm, I'm with what a not AT and T Time Warner mm. and you know it just you know internet is this much movies are you know eight different ways and telephone and you know yes. all these other things in fact I had to get the telephone. Yeah, you mentioned. yeah, yeah, but of course the box. It's nice. It helps warm the room in the winter. So, yeah. Yes, yes. I guess my wife still watches a bit of television, and I watch it occasionally with her. So I mean, that would be the yeah. final thing would be to wean her. But the thing about it is that we watch a lot of, or I watch a lot of Netflix. I have an outstanding Netflix uh, documentary actually that I'm halfway through that I need to return to about the drummer from Cream. Uh, who apparently is quite a character. I got halfway through that documentary and then the movers arrived and I haven't had a chance to, to watch it since. Mm. But yeah, it is interesting how you actually wean people off television. I think people's shows being cancelled is a good start, but the yeah. internet has been remarkably useful. Oh, yes. And now there is more... I mean, if you are a television... Or if you like the 
phenomena of having a television, you know, in the watching a television in the evening, you know, like the evening pipe of the 18th century, you know, you can't yeah. be weaned off the evening pipe of television. <laughs> yeah. There are now means, I mean, I watch YouTube through the television. I watch it through my... Well, I think you know, the monitor is a separate issue nowadays. Yeah. Well, but, yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, that's all it is is a screen. Yeah. <laughs> the issue is how do you get there? However, the, the, the experience of watching something on 1080p on a large screen versus like an iPhone is distinctly different. Oh, oh yeah, yeah. yeah. I don't, iPhones are for making phone calls. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and looking on a map maybe if you're lost. Yeah. <laughs> that's about yeah. it. Yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, and by yeah, remember, I, I don't think you gave me an answer on that question about a, a wall size, you know, five foot by eight foot at uh, four hundred DPI screen. When am I going to have that? Well, you know, I'm going to WWDC this year, Heron. They may surprise you. The the biggest debate currently, which I don't honestly know, is what the next Mac operating system is going to be called. Yeah, because obviously they've been doing the. You know, I mean, yeah, they're yeah, you know, they're running out of number. Well, it's ten ten, or it's something else. It's either ten ten <laughs> or it's eleven, or something else. Maybe, maybe they'll just break the mold, and well, who knows? Anyway, yeah. well, yeah, maybe they'll just break the mold and start a letter number, <laughs> letter operating system or something. Yeah, who knows? Yeah. Who knows? But yeah, I've I've had high hopes for the past decade for um, you know whatever you call it OS eleven or whatever they yeah. call it. Um, because I think the potential there to do something really quite revolutionary is certainly that. Well, but the problem is screens themselves. I mean, the idea of these retina displays, it's just damn difficult to make them large, I guess, right? Yeah. Although there's no reason you couldn't put a bunch of them together, I guess. So my, my, yeah, is, that, is that feasible? Is, my, my Mac laptop, I think, is 15 inches. Yeah. And that's a retina display. Oh, yeah. That's a beautiful I thing. I can't imagine the being. I mean, aside from the power usage, which was the problem with the laptops, uh, yeah, you know, there are a variety of, of things. I, uh, my view is that they'll probably come out with your Retina display, if not this year, probably next year. I don't see any. Oh, oh, yeah, you're obstacles. talking about on the desktop. Yeah. I'm talking about five feet by eight feet. I'm talking about uh, something that's going to hang on the wall that's going to be theater size, but it's also going to be at 300 or yeah. 400. It's going to be uh, actually better than the retina displays we've, we've got now. I yeah. mean, that's what I want. <laughs> work, work out, you know, I mean, my view is um, probably by the time you're in your mid-70s, that will be the case. Wow. Wow. That's If a, not earlier. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think, again, it, you, there's... You could put them together. You know, there's a bunch of smaller retina displays. Yeah. So, I mean, and this is going to be expensive at first, but damn, that would be. <laughs> I don't know why. I mean, yes, it probably will be expensive, although the cost is coming down with all yeah, of this. Yeah. I think 4K, the, the television format kind of lends yeah. itself to that. Well, that's getting good. I can say, you know, one of the things I, I see here is that this, this really does uh, make digital art the end product itself, it's going to look just, I mean, you couldn't make it look, in fact, it wouldn't be any better printed. Hmm. In fact, the, the, the image on the screen on a high density monitor, uh, is, is as good as it's ever going to get. It's never going to get better than that. Hmm. And that, that changes art completely. <laughs> Speaking of art, I, I can't think of the fellow's first name. You'll probably know the fellow's first name. Uh, Geiger. Who did the Living Machine? Who did all the Aliens artwork? Do you know his first name? No. 
He went by the name you, H. Are you going to give me? Okay. H. Well, it could be pronounced Giger or Geiger. I always pronounced yeah. it Geiger because of the long I yeah. after the single letter. His artwork. How does he spell G E I G E R? G I G E R. Oh, G I G E R. Which, like Tiger, I always pronounced Geiger, but it could be yeah. pronounced yeah. some other way. Yeah. Uh, Geiger. Yeah. Are you, are you <laughs> yeah. familiar with the Living Machine? Oh, okay. Though? Well, I've seen these pictures. Before. Yeah. The yeah. Living Machine is little people as bullets that are fired out of this gun. Yeah. Um, and he, he did all the alien artwork and he yeah. basically, he impacted so many different aspects of thought. And his aesthetic has permeated into a lot of the uh, science fiction <laughs> universes oh, and yeah, things like sure. that. Yeah, 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 yeah. Good stuff. Our listener Connor Sites Bowen actually is very familiar with the, um, you know, the Warhammer Forty Thousand fantasy universes that I rap about here periodically. I saw him posting some some photos of going to his local, you know, hobby store and this kind of stuff. So I think there's a there's a similar group of nerds here that are obviously and <laughs> and Geiger in Geiger had a profound impact on those universes as well. It's kind of a post-human aesthetic where everything's slightly drawn out and slightly elongated but considerably smoother and it's just a beautiful aesthetic while being quite cold and also um you know yeah. very much a kind of alien with humanist elements which is you know the nature of the aliens film but yeah when i heard <laughs> that he died was only last night actually and i thought gosh i hadn't even realized that he was still alive i mean yeah, like... I, i've never given him a thought so i, <laughs> I didn't even know he was yes yes <laughs> No, but like he, I said, I have seen I have seen his drawings. Yeah, so. the living machine is actually a metal sculpture. It's actually a large metal sculpture where the people bullets are about, I think, uh, oh, what is it, twenty inches long or something like that. So it's actually quite a large structure. Oh, let me look for that. But yes, you can. Yeah, he also. Oh, had, I see. Oh shit! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he also had a connection with the cyberpunk author William Gibson, and I have very mixed feelings about William Gibson. When I was about <laughs> thirteen, fourteen, there was a girl who I, I don't know what the terminology is in this country for this kind of person. She basically slept with all the you know boys in a single year. Oh, a slut. Yeah, I think, but I know he was actually, and I was, yeah. I, I didn't sleep with her. I was actually friends with her. Yeah. And she would, she was. Yeah, and you're a loser. She's a slut and you're a loser. <laughs> rhino, Darren, rhino. Now, well, the only like, guy who couldn't fuck her. <laughs> well, actually, there were a couple of opportunities and it was all a little bit too surreal. And I kind of scurried out of there very quickly. <laughs> Not because I wasn't interested in having sexual experiences, just I wasn't interested in having a kind of McDonald's sexual experience, I guess. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it, yeah, so she would pass me these DVDs, oh, not DVDs, um, videos of various things that she'd take. She was, uh, you know, she'd do various artist things too. Yeah. And she was always in the kind of art. You mean she was doing artists? <laughs> no, no, no. She would she would do like sculpture and you know mixed. What do they call it? Mixed media. Mixed media. Okay, okay. So she was. Yeah. Okay. So she's whole, an artist. Yeah, who yes. makes stuff. Yeah. Yes. And so she would periodically give me these things that she would think would interest me, and we'd talk a yeah. lot about computer viruses. I take it back. She's not a slut if she's an artist. She's an artist. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes, very true. Who just has, you know, a really strong libido. Yeah. Well, actually, it was more, it was very curious because I met her again in her early 20s. And she, 
basically outlined, including a close friend of mine, in relatively short order, it must have been about half an hour conversation, just a general description of genitalia, which was a very curious conversation to have about, you know, the people that you'd been to school with. You know, this kind of extended conversation. <laughs> yeah, it's not one I think I'd want to be even have, thank you. Yeah. I think, mean, I'll talk to you later. Yes. <laughs> we'll, we'll recalibrate. We'll recalibrate this years later. But um, she, you know, she. One of the videos that she passed me was associated with this William Gibson character. Who, That's the guy who, the cyberpunk guy. Yeah, the cyberpunk right? yeah. guy yeah. who, you know, when he first bought a computer, he thought it was broken because the hard disk was making a noise. You know, and his stuff is all very late eighties, early nineties. In fact captures a period perfectly associated with a projection of the future, which very radically changed soon after his work. By the late 90s, computer technology had moved in a considerably different direction than the people that were fans of Gibson. I mean, it was very much kind of New York installation art, which I did for a period of time in Canberra, Australia. I would build little VR installations and, you know, install them in nightclubs and things like that. I mean, it was kind of cute if you could program, you know, 3D environments. You'd just pass them on the stuff and it would be a thing that would exist, you know? Yeah. Um, But Gibson's narrative was very much part of... uh, There's another guy called Jaron Lanier, who we've talked about previously as well. The VR guy. Yeah. yeah, he was very much part of that culture as well, uh, of where they would have these documentaries and they would all be, you know, filmed. This documentary is now actually, I think, available through Google Video uh, because it was such a seminal talking yeah. heads discussion associated with Gibson's work. Yeah. But from that initial indication, I don't know if Douglas Rushkoff was part of that. I think it might have even been pre-Rushkoff. I got the view that all these people were just phonies, like that they weren't actual doers, they were just talkers, and that was... No, they were philosophers, you know? I mean, philosophers. My view with philosophers is... Well, this is the distinction between pure philosophers and applied philosophers. I've always been more interested, although I love reading pure philosophy... With applied philosophers that actually, you know, hang out in an environment. There was a fellow called uh, Kirsch who wrote a paper called uh, Today Earwig, Tomorrow Man about <laughs> MIT's robotics and AI department building a robot earwig yeah. that would go around analysing things. And I like those kind of philosophers. I like the philosophers yeah. that go and embed themselves, you know, bedded philosophers that go and yeah. work with these people and then write philosophies based on these people's work. Yeah, that makes sense. That's, uh, yeah, that's all. T- philosophy is, um, yeah, a really tired old category. <laughs> To me, philosophy is, I mean, really, you, you have to break it down into metaphysics and epistemology. Metaphysics is a mental illness. Uh, epistemology is a science. Well, that's interesting. I've always preferred me- uh, metaphysics. Well, what can I say? I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I, have, I have no real preference, but I've always thought that metaphysics was really the bedrock of simulation. Well, it may be in that context, but that's not the way it's applied philosophically normally. Metaphysics is going to figure out what's really real. No, it's not necessarily, because, well, it... it well, here it you is... go creating your own new inventions for what these words mean. I... You know. Okay, so what you what you're saying is what's really real. I'm not disputing that. The nature you, of what is. I mean, if, if you. But also what isn't. I mean, that's the interesting thing about metaphysics is that it describes. In order for it to describe dualism and um, 
anything that goes against dualism, I'm trying to think. Anyway, within those non-dualism, non- <laughs> which is a highly dualistic term. Yeah. So, <laughs> whenever it can, it has to be able to critique these associated with both existential and non-existential claims. Listen, so, so the mind, I, this, this is we're going right there. See, this is precisely <laughs> the kind of discussion that I think is really the hallmark of mental illness. Ah. I guess if you want to simulate this stuff, though, Heron. Well, that's a whole different thing. If you want to create a language monkey, you know, simulation, yeah, then that's the way to start. Yeah, but you're going to have to have some metaphysics in that. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, well, yeah, but when you're when you're see, the difference is is whether you believe your metaphysics or you apply your metaphysics. Well, that's exactly my point. Yeah. See, if you yeah, if you if you don't believe it, then it's not really metaphysics, is it? It's epistemology. Well, no. (laughs) If you're making up hypotheses and say, listen, I'm going to assume blah 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 blah. From that follows all this shit. And and if we're going to play that game, it's just like capitalism. If we're going to play the capitalism game, well, here's the way that game works, okay? <laughs> I guess metaphysics gives you the ability, and here I guess I'm talking about meta-metaphysics, not metaphysics. Ah, well then, see, that's an entirely different thing. That sounds interesting, actually. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, meta-metaphysics gives you the yeah, opportunity you to contemplate. And that sounds so, so cool, too. Yes. I mean, not metaphysics. Bah! Yeah, meta squared physics. Yes. Yeah. Or, yeah. That's right. Metaphysics squared is possible. No, cubed would be better. <laughs> yes. Then you're dealing with with more extremes. But let's return to this idea that you actually <laughs> liked. Let's talk a little bit more about this notion of the language monkey simulation. Oh yeah, yeah. Because I guess if listeners stuck through that, and I, I really think uh, our listener Chris McIntosh may have been the only person that stuck through that. But, please... but we're not here for them. Yeah. Yeah, listen, we can give up on on that, man. <laughs> well, they've given up on us. It, and so well, if they do, they do. If they go away, yes. fine. Yes. You know, I mean, what are we going to start pandering to them? I mean, we could do that, and that's a different game. But that's certainly not the game we're playing now. Certainly. <laughs> <laughs> so let's explore this a bit more. When we initially talked about it, I tried to return to a kind of first principles account. And that you found quite troubling initially, but it's actually probably grown on you from what you were describing. Well, like I say, rereading James has really changed my thinking. It's, it's, it's drawn, it's, it's put my own ideas in sharper relief than mm. they were in before. Okay. Yes. And this idea of the navigation system, I mean, I've been thinking in those ideas, but I hadn't solidified it into those words, the navigation system or whatever, mm. you know, but it's beginning to take shape as this, Nonverbal. Well, again, it, it it does almost it does everything that language does. It's just that it's totally internal. Mm. You know, it's not a communication device. It's it's a mapping. It's a way to navigate. It's what navigates your environment. You know, so you don't need language. You don't need spoken language to do that. They had grunts and postures. They were able to communicate that way. All that works. But some, like I say, the great miracle is how did language, how did this system escape the skulls of individuals and begin to be this societal reality? I mean, because language is impossible in an individual. It only exists in a community. So what does the internal, what's the internal language in that context? Ah, well, I have no idea. That's, (laughs) as far as I can see, that's, well, I don't know. Uh, Like I say, I'm thinking this has, this relates to Noam Chomsky's uh, so-called universal grammar, um, and, uh, deep structure. Uh, Although, like I say, I've never really 
like Chomsky, so I haven't, you know, I really, I didn't see things then the way I do now. I may have to take another look at Chomsky and see if mm. there's if there's something there. You do the hard work, Karen, and if it's well, no, that's the fun for me. No, you don't have to do that. That's my job. You're right. Yeah, <laughs> I got this nailed, man. I got it handled. Although I don't have to go there right now. My own ideas are just really sort of uh, flowing freely right now, mm. and. um so I don't I don't feel a need to nail all this because I'm still in the middle of James and so I figure my ideas are going to change a lot more in the next couple of days or weeks. So um, we'll see when I'm finished with James. We'll see what I'm what I'm thinking about. But anyway, as it relates to all this stuff, is this navigation system? This is this is what we're given. This is our biology. So this is what what you're going to have to give these apes. These language monkeys. So when I started Noble Ape, and I hate to return to anything that has actually <laughs> happened previously, but let's let's no, humor me for all, a minute. That's all part of this. Humor me for a minute, Heron. When I started Noble Ape, I felt very strongly that there needed to be an internal and an external. And the internal that I had at the time was based on space and time. It wasn't based on language. Mm-hmm. However, there was a sublinguistic idea of desire on one hand and fear on another hand and desire related to uh, spatial and temporal goals so the apes Mm -hmm. would set implicitly through their interaction in the environment spatial and temporal goals that they would be seeking to meet yeah and in parallel to this they also had fear reactions that could negate some of these spatial and temporal goals yeah but it was very primitive However, oh, that's a good start, though. It worked relatively well up until the point. Yeah. I'm just trying to think of the timing, because actually all of this stuff happened together. Bob Mottram started working on the simulation, and I started talking to you at around the same time. And I had wanted to add a language simulation into Noble Ape from about, well, pretty well from the start. I mean, while I was still in Malaysia, I had what I called the language simplification engine, which was about taking written English and turning it into a much simpler language that was considerably more compressible. You know about basic English? Yes. Okay. Yes. This- you know, I, I gotta, I gotta say though, I, I still think, see, this is precise. I think there's an underlying assumption here that isn't going to work. And that's this idea that you're starting to define your language as a communication tool. No. As opposed no, to no, a no, navigation no, no, no. tool. You're, you're mishearing me. Okay. Language here would be almost a metaphor for not genetics, um, an ability to move. So there are a series of simulations where there is this notion of genetic programming which governs the movement of the organisms. And this means either um, sinusoidal interactions or interactions that can traverse a variety of mathematical functions that give the organisms an ability to move. And through these algorithms, they can be attached to genetics, which can be mated and mutated. Well, through yeah, and movement is a critical issue because, in fact, that's all there is. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's what speech is, yes. <laughs> you know, and even without speaking out loud, it is their movement of chemicals and things in the brain. Certainly. So, so, so I'm not quite sure what you're saying when you say it's about movement, because if you're just talking about the mus- muscular system, yeah. the ability to move the monkey through the space, well, that's movement, but well, let's that's, talk, let's that's not the level. I mean, that only comes, okay, stop that it. comes. All right. So 
what I'm talking about here is not noble ape. What I'm talking about here is more primitive artificial life simulation mm-hmm. associated with this concept of movement. In noble ape, and there's a document... So talk- we're talking about this muscular movement. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's the level. That's we're getting more primitive up simulations. Yeah. Okay. Okay. And typically what would happen is that you would have a defined space, typically a, a circle, that these creatures would have to move to in a specific time. And the ones that could yeah. move to that were then, you know, mated and the other ones would die out. So there was a fitness function associated yeah. with moving this distance. Okay. Noble Ape, and you can go, there's a document called Noble Ape Philosophic, which is very easily accessible online that I wrote in about 97, which lays out the underlying philosophy for Noble Ape had this notion of internal space and time, external space and time, this notion of fear and desire, uh, but also from these kind of things. In fact, what I will do here is actually bring up the document so I can talk to the document. So there's this notion of internal and external, then the notion of space and time, then the notion of vision, which I thought was very important. Then through this comes this idea of identity. Now, identity here... Wait a minute, say that again. Okay. Recap that whole thing. Okay. So you have an internal and external. I'll quote. The ideas explored in the Noble Lake Philosophic are explicitly designed for representing a realistic environment to simulate. There are two very distinct and dualist states in the simulation. These quantities and structures that are created by the simulation and those quantities and, and constructions that are created by individual entities that take part in the simulation, or in this case here, the Noble Apes. And then it describes the notion of space. Space externally is well defined by the simulation. So there's this notion of a fixed external space that can be changed over time. There is it's also, on a two-dimensional grid, right? Uh, initially, yes, but it's a it's yeah. an undulating grid. Yeah, okay. Right. Space internally is considered is considerably more slippery and developed in movement through the external space and vision information. And this was important that the noble apes would actually construct. Although in this case it is very much three-dimensional internal space, a notion of what the external space represented. Yeah, and yeah, here, that's the navigation system exactly. that I'm talking and about. And here yeah. also there is an external version of time, which is obviously like a, a cycle ticking clock kind of concept. But there is also an internal perception of time that is developed through motion and temporal constants like day and night, i.e. the cyclical nature of, of the time frames and also... Don't forget the heartbeat. Well, yes, that's... Time no, that, well. yeah, and, yeah, anyway, there. then there is vision, and vision is, de- is defined as a directional perception of the external space through stereo two-dimensional images. And this was a big thing for me at the yeah. time, because I spent time actually creating stereo mapping for objects and ways yeah. of simplifying this. I wrote it more simply in the end to be um, kind of a, a two-dimensional spatial analysis, but that was after I wrote this document. Yeah. Then there's this notion of the identity, which is basically the way the apes map the external environment into the internal environment. Well, I've been through this in some sense, and what I what I came down to is that the identity is everything, whatever's left over after I've mapped all the rest. <laughs> whatever's left over. So actually, you and I standing together mm-hmm. are mostly the same. Mm-hmm. The only thing that's different is the part 
that's not the same. <laughs> well, once once you have a notion of the identity, you have the effect of both fear and desire onto the identity. And yeah, that, but you don't need an identity for fear and desire. True, but well, you you they act on the identity. That's the thing. So they are um they're mathematical, in or maybe no the way, identity mathematical acts on functions them. that act on it. How do you know it's not the other way that the identity doesn't act? You know, I mean, well, the identity exists as something as manip- the identity is. In Noble Ape, it's the cube that you see that has the stuff manipulating inside it. Okay. So it has a fixed definition. And, and the ape has some awareness of that cube? No. Okay. This is, so this is only available to the observer. To the... Yes, to watch. Now, yeah. after, I, after I go through the identity, then comes language. Language in the simulation, and I think you've read this and critiqued it previously, but yeah. I'll read it out loud again. Yeah. Language in the simulation is defined as any means of communicate, and this has changed now, so this is yeah. the old version. Yeah. Any means of communicating between two or more noble apes where identity information is expressed. It's changed now from Bob Mottram's work and then the stuff yeah. that I pulled in. This need not be deep or meaningful, but it allows some linking between identities. And the way it's done in noble ape currently is actually that the internal language simulation that the apes had all, has almost like actors that take representations of external entities in some cases, in some cases mythological characters that are, you know, former dead apes and what have you. I mean, a wide variety of things can be these actors internally. Yeah. But they then have conversations that the ape also can build upon because the ape itself is also an actor within this internal simulation. The final point is society. The development of societies or tribes of noble apes is the final point of detail in the philosophical presentation of the simulation my hypothesis is that societies will develop in direct response to the conditions of particular islands or sets of islands create this comes through uh, the linking of the simulation of external space to vision vision to internal space internal space to identity identity to language language to society thus theoretically this development should be justified even though uh, each step produces complex Lexes and convolutions of the previous information. I got to break in before I lose this idea mm. because this idea, oh God, that language comes before society, that yeah, society so emerges. See, I'm thinking, I'm yeah, see, what I'm thinking is it's got to be the opposite. It's got to be, there already has to be a, I wouldn't use, I wouldn't say society, I'd say community. Mm. That there has to be a community in which language can arise, that it cannot arise separately. It can only arise where there already is a community, and is, if that's a more or less stable community over time, then language can emerge there. Yeah. So I wrote this in June 1997, which was roughly a year to the day after I started Noble Ape, and it just existed as a means of describing yeah. the simulation to folks who might be more philosophically interested. Yeah. It is... I mean, it's still pretty good. There obviously have been changes. Well, since, it's been but, a long time. Yeah. That was that, for for that time. It yeah. was great. Yeah, <laughs> you know, and and, and it framed, you've it moved on. The early development of the simulation, and I yeah. think you know, in that regard, it's still a relevant document. And I present absolutely it with a no, it's simulation. a historical document. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. exactly. I sort of as the same way I look at my journals. Mm. You know, that's a it's a record of what I've done and written. Yeah. Yeah. And certainly, I mean, I would recommend to anyone who started this kind of simulation to write a document like that. Now, I don't know how many words it is in, it's about, I don't know, I don't know how many words it is. It's less, I think it's about one and a half thousand words at most, maybe less than that. 
Um, but it certainly gave, and prior to writing this, I had written, uh, probably about 30 to 40,000 words associated with Noble 8, which are the original manuals of Noble 8, which predate Noble 8 Philosophic. Uh, so, you know, writing before you actually start these kind of simulations is something that's relatively important, if nothing more just to distill your thoughts or perhaps, um, biases. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you start well, it's, it's not just right. I, I would use the word journaling, you mm. know, it's getting your ideas and it doesn't have to be written for anybody else. Mm. It, it's really? about getting these ideas out of your head onto paper where you can look at them and move them around and after, change them. After and, a certain amount of simplification, it needs to be writing for someone else, unless you well, want for, to create a simulation you. that you just keep to yourself. Well, uh, so I'm, no, I'm just talking, I'm talking to more general terms, mm. not just for this. I mean, for just for life, mm. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. Yes. That, well, that's uh, a different point. Yeah, very. You no, know, for a specific project, yeah, that you plan on marketing or putting yeah. into the world, then you're going to want to be writing for other people. But yes. but that's a separate issue from writing to help yourself clarify your thinking. Yes. Well, yes. I mean, that's fundamentally what you're doing here, basically. But you're also presenting a framework that you can reflect upon. Well, you- I'm. What do you mean not what I'm doing? You mean the Gendo thing, all no, that? No, no, no. What I'm saying is that if someone starts a simulation, let's let's look at the raw language monkey simulation as an abstract idea. Let's not even liken it to Nobel. What do you mean raw? What we've talked about in an abstract sense so far, not associated with Nobel, associated with going back to first no, principles okay. and no, creating but, okay, the but language I mean, we're talking simulation. Okay, all right. so from that, you need to you. The thing that interests me through that is not having an external world component. Could you just create a language monkey simulation that has oh, yeah. no external world? No, yeah, that's irrelevant. All all the monkey can deal with is its map. Yeah. Whether that corresponds to anything. Well, again, the consequences of his act of his behaviors, though. Mm. So you you need you need the external world, however, probably as a test. Yeah, but however, the in this case, the language monkey will create the. The notion of self-justification through this is very important because what you create associated with the external world in your language can be very, very different than what the external world actually is. And what well, what, interesting no, but see the whole, this, no, but see the whole idea of what the external world really is. That's metaphysics. That's exactly that's what I'm saying. That's a fucking mental illness. That's we what I'm don't saying. know what it is. Yeah. We can never know what it is in and of itself. That's just a philosophical jack-off period. It means nothing that can be concretized in any way that I can see. Well, I guess that's my point, that you could actually construct a simulation where you could write a narrative of the external world and ah, pass it back. Ah, okay, yeah. That's you know, in the pro- yeah. In the process of creating a simulation, you're probably going to need that. <laughs> yes. yes. Yeah, you need an external reality because you're going to build the, uh, the, the maps on that thing. Can we take a pause here and just for a second, my wife's come home and I think she wants to share something with me. So I will stop and restart the recorder if you want to get a wine or just pause yeah, recording. Uh, I'll take care of it. Yes, old house problems. Yeah, yeah you, you're just beginning to see the beginnings of this. No, I think <laughs> it's not that we're beginning to see the beginnings of this. It's that I'm fully appreciative that yeah. these things happen. Yeah, you're it's, expecting this kind the, of It's stuff. the yeah, time sure. and cost to resolution that's really critical here. Oh, yeah, yeah. Dealing with it is yeah. a separate issue. So, just, I mean, for, just knowing that it's going to come up is, is helpful. <laughs> yeah, all the power upstairs is only two-pronged. There's no three-pronged power upstairs, and I thought I could fix this, but in actuality, I couldn't. I mean, it's going to take me a few... I bought the electronic sockets and then the wire was too big to fit into the electronic sockets. It's old, thick 
single yeah. gauge wire. So now I need to find new screws for the electronic sockets to take the two and turn it into three. This points. is well, this is why they pay you all that money at Netflix. This is why you can hire an electrician well, to do this shit for you. You see, that's that's the interesting thing because we hired an electrician and he said this is going to be. I feel embarrassed quoting this to you because it's going to seem outlandishly expensive. Yeah, yeah. And then he he lent my wife one of the sockets. Yeah. And he said to her, just buy a lot of these, which is what I did. Yeah. And then, unfortunately, the wire is just too big for the socket. So I now need to find screws that fit the new sockets, although I'm yeah. suspect with the new sockets because they don't fit properly. No, my view is I'll probably have to buy larger gauge, probably 25 amp instead uh-huh. of 20 or 15 uh-huh. amp and work from there. So I currently have everything on two prongs and thankfully the Mac power supplies will yeah. switch to two prongs easily. Yeah. Oh, man. Yes. <sighs> I'll deal with, I can deal with all the physical stuff in a but electricity just, I just never have felt comfortable. No, I don't have no problems with electricity if I have the right things. The problem in yeah. this country is it's very difficult to actually get your hands on the right things. In Australia, we would get these plugs with big screws that you put the wire in here. Everything is kind of curiously standardized just in the wrong direction. So if something is slightly outside the bounds of what it should be normally, it's immediately just impossible because, oh, well, you should have moved your electrical fiber. I mean, this is, um, the stuff in the basement is all, what do they call it? Turn and knob electrics or whatever, where it's just Oh, like, I don't know. I don't know. Like I say, I really don't yeah. know anything about ele- electricity at all. Yeah. You know, it's just one of those things that my, my eyes glaze over. I mean, I, I, I can yeah. change a light bulb. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> well, the problem downstairs was my wife tried to change a light globe and the, the gl- glass yeah. of the globe came off, but the globe remained in the socket. <laughs> yeah, it's like, right. no, we're turning the power off in order to, for me to fix it. Yeah, 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 thing. yeah. You can't, yeah. yeah, you can't have any electricity. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not putting my hand up into some live metal. Oh, no, thanks. Uh, so thankfully we do have a couple of roving lamps. But you already utilized. know where all the breakers are and everything. Yes. So you can just go right in there, well, shut off that circuit. The first circuit. thing that we actually had to do was install new breakers because the, old breakers were no way up to code and also we had one set of breakers for both the tenant's place and our place so the first thing i did was broke the breakers in half put those breakers that need to be at the tenant's place accessible to them and the breakers here accessible to us and i know from those breakers which turn off the lights and what yeah yeah, i've rewired a couple of light sockets but unfortunately the the single gauge wire is just impossible with the new plugs so gonna Mm -hmm. Take some time to get all the stuff worked out. Yeah. Well, it's exciting. You know, it's your house now. Yes. Though, so it's a whole different thing, you know? Yes. Yes. So we were talking about this notion of a stat, let's call it a standalone language monkey simulation where the language monkey simulation existed almost like a compiler or an interpreter that was fed streams of narrative, which could be described as perceptions of reality. Wait a minute. <laughs> Fed narrative or, or fed, perce- you know, visual data, smell data? No, no, no. You Here. see, this is the interesting thing is that I think, well, my assertion at least, is that you could create a language monkey simulation where the language monkey was purely being fed narrative, which would represent ah. what the eyes were showing at the ears, the nose, mm. but in a, in a language simulation that could be easily, you know, parsed and integrated. And this, I think, has been a dream or certainly was part of some of the discussion that I've had with Bob Mottram and a few other earlier participants in Nobelate was that you could actually extract the um, language simulation and run it as a standalone simulation where the perceptions, external 
you know, events, movement was all fed back to it in a narrative form. And that, I think, is kind of the blueprint that I was trying to work towards yeah. when we first started talking about this. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't understand how that could work. But, uh, so you know, that doesn't seem much. Rather than the experience of walking, you know, down a path or something, did you removed your what you descriptively see in these kind of things and just instead very much like the old text-based computer choose your own adventure games you typed in i walked down the path all this kind of stuff and the the narrative was what actually you know went into the language machine rather than you know visual data or this kind of stuff how does this do we have a navigation system on board here well, we have a descriptive navigation system that enables you... I mean, like the old text computer games, you could say you walk north, you know, 500 yards. Yeah, yeah, there's a see... big, old, there's a great big tree at, exactly. uh, at this location. Yes. Okay, and, and, yes. and but that, how are you going to map that? What do you mean map that? I mean, how are you going to tag that in, in the uh, navigation system? That well, tra- okay, so you could have... You're right, you could have... An, an external world that was able to map this language back to the language simulation. Or what would even be more curious is a phenomenon that my spiritual advisor noticed today. She drove down a street that she hadn't driven down for about three weeks and a number of the houses had been repainted, one of the houses had been sold and she was kind of caught by this difference yeah. in experience. You could also put that into the language simulation where potentially... You know, the language monkeys need not be fed an identical set of experiences when they traverse the same area. Well, they shouldn't be. Well, if exactly. we're just starting with one, we yeah. don't have to consider that. But no, every language monkey is going to have a different perspective. Certainly. So like I say, we have to sort of assume something that, that as a philosopher, I can't tolerate, mm. which is that there really is a world out there. Well, that doesn't you have know, to be. I mean, what would be interesting is... It just has to be an assumption, that's all. If it, you sent this language monkey random data or random information continuously, what kind of language monkey would you end up with? Well, it depends on what you mean by random. I'm not sure that's a useful... I mean, if it's unable to make patterns out of it, then it, it it's of no value at all. Well... It has to be able to somehow find some pattern. Certainly. But to, is, to label. Yes. Is that... This goes back to Genie. Is that implicit in the, irrespective, even if you uh, gave random information, the language monkey should be able to a, assemble that random information into something that was coherent over time? Um, maybe, maybe, but it wouldn't, it wouldn't be very serviceable, probably. <laughs> well, people can make, I'm, I've, I've had no experience with psychedelics, so I can't talk about this descriptively, but I can imagine psychedelic experiences that were a series of flashes or a series of things that were in no way connected experientially, but through perhaps the pre-existing language programming. Well, you can have a narrative. Yeah, you can lay a narrative on top of anything. Yeah. And and that's what people do, of course. It's exactly what they do. Yeah. 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 So you're right. Um, You could just send them random data Mm. and... Well, that'd be an interesting experiment to no, see certainly. what it could create out yeah. of it, you know. Yeah. And I think, I mean, that's... See, the- and this also relates to this idea of what I've been calling a terrain, a sensitivity terrain or something, yeah. you know, about like to symmetry or this or that, you know, the, in a, a hundred by hundred grid or just a ten by ten grid. Uh, that that's actually that might be useful too is uh, just to start off with a ten by ten grid of 
of sensitivities to various aspects of the environment. Yeah. Uh, and that you just get a random, you know, a so, you know, assignment of, of intensities at each of these things. And in each language monkey gets a unique one. Well, th- then you could get the hereditary stuff. And everything. Anyway, you could, that would be a real good thing for evolution to work on. Mm. Yeah, I I seem to recall having this conversation with you already, but within well, that, I'm still having this conversation with myself. So, <laughs> yes, within that, there would be both genetic and epigenetic components. And then when we talked about yeah. it last time, you kind of denied that there needed to even be genetic components. That there would be well, things like taste that came through a variety of things, which I guess probably I denied has that elements. there'd be any genetic components. We when not I you, don't believe that I I think not that you denied that there would be when I gave it as a description of raw genetics, you argued that this was the wrong way to look well, at it. Well it's part of it. It's yeah. it's a significant part of it, but it's certainly you know one of those other things necessary but not sufficient. Yes. <laughs> like language. <laughs> yes. Yes. Aaron, I fear I'm going to have to call it a night. I've got stuff to do, and I have a very long day planned tomorrow. Stonate listeners, you may find this a function of the new Thursday recording times, but I'm very mindful that I... uh, That's right, you have to work in the morning. (laughs) Yes, I I have quite an extraordinary day tomorrow for a variety of reasons that I may or may not be able to reveal. But yeah, it is is very much an extraordinary day tomorrow that I think is going to take... Additional planning, plus my spiritual advisor downstairs, no doubt will need additional light at any time. But no, this has been a pleasure as always, and I think we should probably uh, continue to muse on this topic of a... I'm fascinated by it. I think, uh, I mean, I've sort of been thinking about it for some time, but, but, you know, in my position, I'm not, I mean, I'm not qualified. I know nothing about it, but Mm. I'd love to be involved Mm. In a project like this. Mm. You know, well, you kind of have what, already, Heron. That's the funny thing right there. You know? I mean, well, I, I understand that. Yeah, I know that. But I think we could do, I think, I think we could do something really profound. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, we could change the concept of Sims completely. Well, <laughs> you know? I mean, I think let's not devalue your contribution to Noble 8 so far in this slide. Well, it doesn't really make much difference to me because I'm totally unaware of it. So, well, you're you not know. actually because, I mean, you've read papers that I've presented to you, or at least yeah. one primary paper yeah. that indicated that quite strongly. Yeah. So, yeah. you know. Well, yeah, I mean, I understand that. But I, I just I just think um, I think we're poised. You know, again, the world is changing so quickly, man. The, the potential we've got, the power that's available to us, we could, you know, I, who knows how far you can take this thing. You know, I'd find out. I yeah, I'd love to explore, explore <laughs> this space. Yes, a pleasure as always, Aaron. You have a good okay. Night. Okay, bye. See ya.